This is Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. This is Adam sitting in for Elise and Steve. So today we're in Washington and our guest is award-winning journalist. Yes. Can you believe that? Best-selling author. You knew me when. I knew you when. (laughs) Veteran White House correspondent and my friend. Yes. April Ryan. Before we start, we have to plug your latest book, which is Under Fire. Reporting from the front lines of the Trump White House. Yes. It's available on Audible. It's a great listen. Welcome to Words Matter. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here with you. And as you noted, in the interest of full disclosure, during my tenure yes. as Assistant White House Secre- Press Secretary uh, for George W. Bush. And I used to harangue you all the time. You did. And we'll get it, we'll get into that. But you did it in a way. And again, I, I, want, to, I want to tell people about your style as we get into this because – What's my style? Your style was what I called – Patient yet relentless. Oh, I like that. Because you know, you know, being in the White House press office, uh-huh. there's a lot of waiting around. Oh, we yeah. wait around. Hurry up you. and wait. Hurry up and wait. Mm-hmm. So you're outside someone's door. I'm in some meeting. Never got frustrated. I wasn't like, nasty. So first of all, congratulations on our. Thank you for the for the um, congratulations. Well, the congratulations are this month, beginning of your 22nd. You're 22 years now. 22 years. And we did a little word, a little uh, number count before we did a. Uh-oh. We did some some counting before the Don't show. Don't do that. That's going to make me feel old. No, no. It's four presidents. <laughs> yes. Twelve press secretaries. Mm, really? Eighteen communications directors. Dang. Thirteen chiefs of staff. Ooh. I survived them all. And I want to go back to I'm that. I'm a survivor. <laughs> I'm not going to give up. Yes. You didn't know I could sing, this is, <laughs> this is why working with April Ryan was so much fun. And those people in the White House should be thrilled that they get to do this every day because mm. I miss it. But let's go back to that first day. Bill Clinton's president. Mm-hmm. Mike McCurry's the press secretary. Mm-hmm. I love Mike. Uh, Leon Panetta's chief of staff. Mm-hmm. Newt Gingrich down at the other end of Pennsylvania. Yes, with the contract with America and con- all that stuff. All that yeah. stuff. And I want to know what it was like for a young, not yet 30 years old. Not yet. Not yet. You were not 30 when you started. To walk through those gates for the first time and take that seat in that press room next to Wolf and Sam Donaldson and Helen Thomas. Right, right, right. What was that like? So let me go back. When I finally realized I had the assignment, um, I was walking with a friend. um, Well, I got the assignment and we went to some event at the Willard Hotel. And I walked through the park and I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to work here. I was so intimidated. (laughs) And I remember talking to the Secret Service guy that was standing there. He probably may be long gone by now, 22 years. And I said, I'm going to be working. He said, great, I'll see you when you get here. And then that first day came. And I'll never forget it was cold. It was it was in January. Right. This time of year, it was bitterly cold. I mean, I remember I remember. The, the the brown leaves, you know, rustling and Lafayette Park scraping against the, the the red brick and looking at that stark white building with the black uh, wrought iron gates. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, and um, I'll never forget the historic moment. You know, the president was um, commemorating or, or remembering uh, the black soldiers Right. Uh, from World War II who did not get medals for right. their bravery. And I said, what a fitting day. Every day I walk through those gates. I don't I don't get the euphoria like I did the first time. Right. But. But. Every day I walk through those gates or come close, I'm like, wow. For a kid from Baltimore. 
and I'm just going to say it, a black girl from Baltimore who has touched every area of Baltimore, especially the areas where Freddie Gray was picked up. I still go to the hairdresser. There are churches that I frequent near where he was picked up. The, the street corner, Penn and North, where, that was, where the police standoff was, is where my mother used to take me to the health clinic when I was a kid. Wow. Yeah. You know, being black in Baltimore, Nancy Pelosi's Baltimore. Right. We touched Nancy D'Alessandro. Yes, her her father and brother were mayors of Baltimore, the D'Alessandros. So little Italy. But when you're in Baltimore, you touch almost every area of Baltimore, you know, from high income, low income to mid income. We were a middle income family. But in Baltimore at that time in the sixties, you know, you 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 were in the black community, right. all parts of the black community. Sure. And you were striving to get on the other side of the beltway. But, you know, there was redlining. But, you know, and that that's a piece of my survival, how to patiently wait and, and understand that it's just a season. And understanding that going to this place was like, oh, my gosh, I never imagined being where I am today. I never imagined meeting you. I never imagined that I would be in this space of history and being a part of history, writing history, having people listen to history. It's still, even when I'm talking about it, it still kind of gets you, kind of chokes you up. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's also a little weighty. You feel, you little feel, weighty? you feel it. You feel it. I mean, I'm sure you still Life feel it. Life and death are written and spoken in that, in that, in that building Absolutely. by the leader of the free world who we have worked with. Yeah. And so you started there, like we said, in January of 1997. Mm -hmm. The Ken Star Whitewater investigation Ooh, was, I remember that was entering its fourth year for all those people who say that the, the Mueller thing's gone on too long. But the Monica stuff happened when I was there. When you were there. And so that was the first thing you saw really that for that first year. And it's amazing. I went back just for fun. <laughs> to that first White House correspondence dinner because that was the that was pre. Mm -hmm. I don't like to call it Monica Gate because it was Clinton Gate. It's kind of mm -hmm. not fair to her, but pre all that coming out, mm -hmm. and John Stewart, a very young John Stewart, was oh. there, and he didn't even his jokes. He did seventeen minutes. He made fun of Ted Kennedy and Robert Byrd, a little bit of Al Gore. He didn't even make fun of. But Bill it's Clinton. hard to sit in front of a president and roast him. I'll never forget Cedric the Entertainer right. when George W. Bush was there. Right. He was bombing because he's like, ooh, he was sweating profusely. That's a tough room. And to be able to roast the president in his face. Well, and I remember that one because I was honored to be your guest yeah. for that one. And so, you know, you watch that investigation and you watch an impeachment. You've seen, you know, a lot of, a lot of people. I've seen there. impeachment. I've seen, I was a young reporter, but I've seen it. I'll never forget we have to remember that when reporters are covering something, we understand, for the most part, the magnitude of it. And the it was the Ken Starr report. The it was uh, the map room and Bill Clinton being deposed. I, I remember after, you know, he was deposed and he announced, you know, that he lied. I'll never forget the rallies at the White House in the Rose Garden. Oh, yeah. I'll never forget that those. That pep rally they yeah. had. Yeah. Right. I was there. I'll never forget those. But one thing I, I will never forget uh, when Ken Starr came. And, and when you were there, things had changed. With each president, there's a bit of change. Sure. And there's a bit of change in how uh, the the process happens. But at that time, it was pre-9-11. Everything, the campus was open. 
you could walk along East Executive Avenue between Treasury. Right. And, and right. East Exec. Right. Yes. you could, and, and you could walk along with no problem. And now it's shut down after 9-11. But during that time, there were so many uh, people who were just gathered along just watching what was going on. And that day, the crowds were just massive. And I'll never forget. Ken Starr came and I believe it was a dark car. I, I I believe if I remember it was blue. If it's not blue, it was black or green. It was a dark car. Right. And he came in and I'll never forget I caught his eye. And he was sitting alone in that in that the back of the car. And I looked at him and he was just alone. And the importance of him coming to the White House. And then it was the silence was deafening in the White House that day because we were waiting to find out. And I believe there was a clock on on, on the news ticking as to how long the president yep. was being deposed. And it was just such a deafening silence there. I remember Paul Begala. Yep. I ran into Paul Begala. And at that time. The ushers used to walk the president's clothes. He used to change a lot. They used to always walk his suits back and forth. And we'd see between that. Between the residents. Between and the right. residents and the White House in the West. Well, in the West Wing. The residents right, that, in the West right Wing. Right down the, the, the yes, colonnade. The corner, yes, the colonnade. And we would see that. And I'll never forget this this back and forth with water and trays of water and, and, and the suits. And I talked to Paul. And there was another reporter with me. And I said, Paul, what should we expect? He said, the first lady is you know she's there and she's a part of this and and just wait just wait he just kept trying to calm what was going Paul's to be good revealed. That way. yes he is he really is <laughs> he, really is. he was good back then he, and he, he's, uh, he's still good at that and i wanted to know and i'll never forget watching that night because i was sitting that day and i was watching my eyes met ken star for that moment and um, as he was driving in and I mean, that was a moment that is etched in my mind. Just I remember the feeling. I remember the silence. I remember how people were trying to keep the words. They were very strategic in their words. Um, I remember Mike McCurry. And even even back then, words didn't matter. Words always matter. <laughs> <laughs> the words really matter, especially now. Um, I remember those those briefings and how McCurry would. He didn't want to know a lot of things. Well, I, I, I actually used to use Mike in media training, and Mike was a Moynihan guy as I was, mm. and he had a great sense of humor. And like you said, he kept his distance from Clinton. But I remember he once began one of those briefings by saying, uh, you know, usually they read the news of the day, as you mm -hmm. know, better than anybody. Mm -hmm. They read, you know, the, the schedule. He just said, um, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the theater of the absurd. We do, <laughs> we do this five times a week. With that, I'll be happy to take your questions. And he was the first one to open up those briefings to his consternation. But I told him, I said, don't you ever be upset because people there, especially now in this moment, right. we need transparency because so much is done without knowledge of what's happening and how it happened. This is still the United States of America. And there's more of a, of a call for transparency. And I am really surprised and shocked that the American people are not screaming about a lack of briefings right now. This is not good. This is not good. Let's go back. You mentioned 9-11. We talked mm -hmm. about the transition with administrations. Bush folks came in. I didn't come at the start. I actually didn't start till January 1 of 02. But, you you know, that honeymoon period that's usually a year, year and a half, mm -hmm. that ended that day, September oh, 11. It ended and you were there. Yeah. You were in that press room. You were working. Talk about that. Well, let me say this. Let me say this. Um, I wasn't in the press room at the time. Okay. I was literally waiting for the president to come back from Florida. Right. 
Yes. Okay, so you were what you were. Yeah. So I was at home in Baltimore. So he was in Florida. And all of a sudden I was That's right. Watching. It was a trip. It That's was a right. trip. It was a trip. And, and Andy Card was there. And some of our colleagues were on the plane with them. It felt like Armageddon that day. And if you remember the moment, and this is, I think, when a lot of things changed, technology, how we communicated, everyone communicated with each other. Because at that time, we everyone pretty much had flip phones or were transitioning from flip phones. Only to, Rove had the BlackBerry. Yes, the BlackBerry. Exactly. <laughs> you remember. Yes. So and people couldn't. The phone lines were down. You right. couldn't communicate with anyone. The people who could communicate with their friends were texting. Right. Or on the BlackBerry. Right. And then the White House press corps quickly moved from beepers and those flip phones to the BlackBerry. By the time I got there on January 1 of 02, we were all issued BlackBerries. Yeah. And Rove's wasn't even a White House BlackBerry at the time. It was an RNC BlackBerry mm. because the White House did not even issue them until after 9-11. Mm. And so to your Are you point, telling something? He, was he supposed to have an RNC BlackBerry at the time? Well, that became an issue at some point. <laughs> oh, Lord. Anyway, moving on. I, I, I don't want this podcast to be that podcast. Oh, the revelation. All oh, the revelation. Oh. But so, you know, and I have to say, you know, again, I and people don't know this. No, they don't know this. But, you know, I showed up. I worked at NBC News. I'm a Democrat from New York. I knew your cousin. Ed Towns, when he's yes. a congressman. I love him. And he was a, a, a great part of that delegation. But what was amazing was, even though the press and Republicans, or Republicans oh. perceive that they, that they get treated tougher than, than most, that was a pretty collegial group. You I know mean, what? Um, Ari was tough sometimes, but he tried. I mean, you know, there were moments. I don't have when, a, yeah, I don't have a problem with Ari. I mean, but when we had our disagreements, we agreed to disagree and we respected each other the next day. And I think that's why you and I are cool. I mean, it doesn't, it's not about policy or politics for me. And that's the unfortunate right. thing now that the press room, and we're under attack for a reason. You have a press room that doesn't look like it used to the time of Walter Cronkite. We didn't know his politics. All we knew was that's the way it was. Right. We didn't know his politics until after he left. Sure. But now you have very extreme liberal reporters. You have extreme right-wing reporters, conservative reporters. And then you have some that are down the middle. I pray that I'm down the you middle. You are down. You've always been down the middle. And what's amazing was, you know, I was thinking about this in the context of, of the April Ryan under fire. Ari always called on you. He even did. If, even if he didn't want to hear your question. My Republican Ari with his Democratic parents. With his yes. Democratic parents. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And, and he did. Yeah. And, and we st- and to this day, we can laugh. We may disagree. And, and there were tense times. There I were remember, very tough, tense times. I remember he did something that I asked in the briefing room or in the gaggle, and it made news. And I asked him about Bill Clinton trying to help with Israel and Palestine. I remember this. And he said, you know, and he was in, and at that time, he was not at the level where he could speak on another president. And it was a big news because he said something when you shoot for the moon and you miss or something. This. Yeah, you remember shoot that? The moon. It was yeah, shoot, the moon. shoot the moon and you miss. And it was a big story. And I asked that. I never, I never, but that was his response. I just asked a blanket question and he made the response. He made the news and he got chastised for it. Oh, I remember. You You think it was bad up front. You should have seen it behind the scenes. Oh, my God. But, yeah, and he got in trouble for it. But he didn't, he never jumped me, did he? Nope. 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 And, and we're now, still friends way, this day. You just mentioned that about the reporters. Now, you're obviously not a politician, but you have what I call constituents or at least lis- <laughs> listeners. <laughs> I have I have an April ar- April's army, apparently. But you have people that listen to you? 
that reads you. And believe me. And believe you and hear you. And you have a – talk about a little bit about your responsibility to those people to get it right, to do the job you do. (laughs) Number one, as a reporter, as a journalist, I mean, I went to school and studied for this. And you have to research. That's what we do. Um, And people think when we sit there, we're just coming up out of our eyeball and just thinking of something. Sometimes if we do that, it's because we're playing on something that someone else asked, something that we already know about. We have studied to the nth degree, talked to sources on the Hill, talked to congressional leaders, talked to senators, talked to whoever, the people who are involved. We have done, we've done our homework before we go and ask. And so as a journalist, I think it's imperative because the stakes are so high. And people listen out for us to tell them the truth and what's going on because the White House is still a mystery. And what we do is kind of take the veil off of it and inform. I believe it's it's my it's my duty to tell the truth and know as much and talk to as many people because there are people out here that are hurting. It's important for me to talk to Larry Kudlow and say, you know, yes, you say there is a hardship. Yes, you say that um, the GDP is affected. Yes, you say that you're sad about it. But... In the meantime, you keep talking about this wall and what you need. Does it balance out? There are people out here that are losing their homes, that their lives are in jeopardy. They can't pay their medical bills or pay for drugs. This is not a joke. Nope. It's real. And I come from that kind of people who need information. I am, if you didn't know, I'm a black woman (laughs) (laughs) from Baltimore. But no, I mean, I understand the need for information. I come from a community that would read the papers about things that affected them when the mainstream news didn't tell us. You know, information is power. Information is important. We need to know how things affect us so we can live our lives for survival. And I remember when you got a hold of a story and it was important to you, to the people who listen to you, mm-hmm. the people who follow you. I mean, I remember one, and it's one I wanted to bring up because there was a backstory that you might not have known, but you, you're, I, I, I sense Uh-oh, you're, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell so me. So we all remember the Trent Lott thing. Remember the Trent Lott when he goes to the Strom Thurmond 100th birthday party Ooh. and he says, we all in Mississippi voted for him and America would have been a better place if we'd elected. Now, this is a man who in 1948 ran on the segregation ticket. Yeah. April gets up, asks questions about it. Now, the White House line was, we accepted his apology, but you didn't let it go. And one of the reasons I wanted to ask I was- I remember now. You were, oh my gosh. And one of the things that was interesting there was- did you sense that there was a disconnect between what the political advisors, the roves, the communications of advisors, course. and what George W. Bush really thought? Yeah, I think George W. Bush, and I'll say this to this day, George W. Bush had a heart, but the the ideology of the party and those who felt differently led him, I believe, in a lot of ways. Well, but on this one, what was interesting, so even though Ari said, oh, it's settled, we've Accepted like, nope. his culture. Nope. <laughs> and so a couple of days later, he's about, he had to go. He was going to Philadelphia. We were going to speak in front of a, a group of pastors, a religious yes. group. You're bringing this all afresh. Come on. Come on. Keep going. And what happens is we have that meeting every morning at 830. And, and then there was a gaggle. And then it was a gaggle. But so what, what happened with us was we had to make a decision on clear the president needed to say something. We, he hadn't said anything yet. And so we had to give him advice. And so Dan Bartlett took me down to the Oval. And there's, there's Dan three, Bartlett. There, three, there were three options for that. There was say to the pool, make a statement to the pool, or say it from the podium. Now, It's I, more presidential coming from the podium. But it's also a bigger hit. It's okay. A, it's a bigger hit. And so when we're all back there, and again, you'd, you'd force this to the front, and it was great because mm. – 
And I look. I'm, Tell me more. I love it. <laughs> and I was NBC former NBC guy, uh, uh, Irish Jewish guy from New York, mm-hmm. Democrat. My job was there was to give advice to the president, and so my advice was actually take a question from the pool because I knew Trent Lott was going to go down anyway. Mm-hmm. And did we want to be the politically ones, yeah. to whack him? Dan said, "Well, no, I don't think he's going to go for that." I talked to him earlier. Let's make a statement to the pool. So we go in the Oval. Dan gives his advice. The president kind of ignores us, picks up the phone and says, Ashley, uh, get me uh, Gerson. And mm. he says, I'm going to do it from the podium. And Dan starts to – but, but uh, he says, Barlett, <laughs> did you hear me? And he turns to me and he says, what, what do you think? And I said, well, sir, I'm, not only am I with Dan, I think, and I gave him my, what I just said. And he said, guys, it's 2002. Amen. That, that didn't write. That's the George W. Bush that I know. And in, in my other book, which book was it? The Presidency. See, I got three books I know, now. Yeah, I, I know. know. Can you believe We're it? We're going to have to have you back two more times. For I know. Books. I know. I know. Five years, three books. That's crazy. And I wrote them all. No ghostwriter. Um, no, I can tell. We, by the way, it's It's, it's my so, life. It's me. It's it me. It is so you. It's so April Ryan speak. <laughs> so, so look, so, um, so here's the deal. I'll never forget George W. Bush and I talked about race quite a bit. And we talked about Katrina. The George W. Bush that was in front of that podium and all that other stuff, I didn't know. He listened to me. I said, you know, Mr. President, there there before the grace of God go, I, that could have been me and Katrina. I told him that on Air Force One going down. Um, Not only did he hear you, he listened to you. And I remember him talking about that later. To he people. Did. Yeah, because here's the thing. What did he say? He, he remembered that you'd said that and he said that we messed up. I mean, this was this was I'm probably speaking out of school, Mr. President. No, but, you know, but I understand. But it's important that people know because I because in my first book, people saw him in a different light than what we saw him publicly. And we talked about race. And I'll never forget. I couldn't make the second trip to Africa. So they wanted me to include me. And we did a we did an interview. And before while we were going, he was like, we talked about race and we talked about, you know, the overt and subtle uh, racism that was going against Barack Obama. Yep. He said it because I couldn't get subtle out. I was I couldn't get so I said the overt. And he was like, yes, yeah, subtle racism, too. And he said subtle. And we talked about it. And I'll never forget. And fast forward. And I'll never forget the day after the election when Barack Obama was named president of the United States. You got to read it in the first book that. Um, around um, whatever it was around November and it was cold though I'll never forget how cold it was and there were still balloons from the kids who came around remember that night that spontaneous crowd that was on the ground and everything and he was in the Oval Office we were positioned I was positioned right in front of the French doors to be able to see in the Oval Office and I know it was Steve Hadley was yep. in there, and I forgot who else was in there, but he was not happy about something. He was very angry. And then he was pacing, and he saw me in the door. And then he did the raise the roof. I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, and we just started laughing. And the room had just totally changed, and even Steve Hadley looked and was like, okay. The unflappable Mr. Hadley. Who's, yeah, 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 and he smiled. So something, I never found out what was going on in that room at that time. And he raised the roof. He was, I think, in his heart, he was happy to see things change. Oh, absolutely. I believe he really was happy about that because we've talked about it. And when people see him give Michelle Obama some candy at his father's funeral and give they give candy at, I don't know if it was at the memorial, wherever it was before, and then he fell into her arms several times. That's the George W. Bush that I know. Absolutely. And there's another story you, you covered, and I was... 
mixed up in it as a witness against them. But the scooter against lit, them. The scooter oh, Libby Lord. <laughs> that was that was a rough time. And I will have to I do say I have never been more proud of George W. Bush when he left office and decided not to pardon, to pardon Scooter Libby. Libby. Scooter Libby. Scooter Libby did not deserve a pardon. Correct. I shouldn't say that, but he did not. deserve. No, but you can say that because he didn't. And when I try to explain to people the difference, as if you'd have to, between Donald Trump and George W. Bush, the fact that Donald Trump in April of last year did pardon Scooter Libby. What does that say about in terms of, you know, again, this was a big fight. Peter Baker wrote a whole book about the fight between Bush and Cheney. Cheney, they didn't speak for years because he didn't pardon them. But that was Bush. And you, again, you covered that story. I'm going to say this to you. The George W. Bush that I knew, I mean, if he, I think he had, he felt he had to go along with Cheney and he had to go along with Rumsfeld and all those. I'm sad that Colin Powell got caught up in that. I wish Colin Powell could have stayed, you know, right. longer. But, you know, um, I don't know. There are a lot of things. And I'm, I'm, I guess I'm speaking now as a person. I mean, when you see things from behind the scenes, there's all there needs to be different voices at the table to bring honesty and truth for all people. One of the things about Bush, too, I think, is that he didn't get good advice from some of us. That's what I'm saying. There needs to be other people at the table. Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman to run for president in 1972, said, if you don't have a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. There needs to be a lot more folding chairs. Yes, there needs to be a lot more folding chairs at the table. America is not just one mind or one thought. I think that's right. You mentioned that night that, you know, your third president was Barack Obama. And I know that was an administration that probably spoke to more of the issues that people who listened to you cared about. Maybe They did. And you know what? And I got in trouble at the beginning because I looked at every president the same. I think every president should be held accountable. Did I relish in the fact that this was the first black president? Yes, I did. As a black woman, as a human being, as someone whose mother and father never thought that that would ever happen in this nation. But as a reporter and a journalist, my job is to ask him the questions. Were they surprised by that? Were they sort of taken aback well, my how mother, tough you were? My, my mother died before for, um, Obama became president. My father lived. Some people were some people were like, you better watch yourself because people, they love him. They love him. I said, you know, I said, but. I'm still a journalist. But, you know, I had a great relationship with with the Obamas. I had a great relationship with George W. Bush and the Clintons. Something's awry here, but... (laughs) Well, yeah. But, I mean, they understand... It's not you, it's them. But one thing I can tell you, and we're spilling the tea here, we're knocking it over. (laughs) No, we are. One thing I can tell you, and I'm going to say the name, Ron Kirk. um, Ambassador Kirk. Ambassador, former U.S. trade representative. Mayor Um, of Dallas. Yes, yes, he was. Um, and, and wonderful man. He told me one day, it was right after one of the vacations to Martha's Vineyard. We right. were all coming back. I saw him in the street. This is when everybody would walk in the street, you know, just right. walk around, you know, but it's not like that anymore. Um, I ran into him in the street, literally like right in front of Pennsylvania Avenue. And he said to me, he said, your your ears must be burning. I said, what do you mean? He said, the president was talking about you and how I said, you're lying. Shut up. And he said, no, he said, I'm serious. He, I said, well, what was he talking about? He said, you know, someone in the vineyard challenged him about the black press not being tough on him. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. He said, this is what the president said. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. That's not true. He said, there's at least one person <laughs> that's tough and she's fair. And that's what George W. Bush said. And that's what Bill Clinton said, that I'm fair. And that is the highest praise that a 
politician could and should ever pay a journalist. Tough but fair. The late, great Tim Russert, that's what he always wanted someone to say. He was tough but fair. I don't have an agenda. I mean, but if you think because I'm asking questions about race, when the stats show that we still have the highest numbers of negatives in almost every category, if you think I'm a race better, so what? Everyone has some issue that they want before the White House to be able to move forward with their lives. And I know we could talk about you with the Obama administration all day long, but let's yeah. I think that's important. Let's get to that 2016 campaign and then the book, the book, the book under fire. This the, is where under fire happens. Where, now, I will say that when I was listening on the way down, one of the one of audio book, audio book. It's so great. Audible, because words matter. Words matter. One of the things I found interesting was a lesson that you had taken from watching Hillary Clinton during that campaign. Oh, yes. A powerful lesson. Which was that she took the high road. She didn't (laughs) shoot back, which to me is ironic because her husband's campaign in 1992 was all about firing back the way Dukakis hadn't. And George and Paul Begala and James Carville. James used to wear a T-shirt that said, speed kills. And they would. But she's different. She's a woman. People look at women differently. But you saw that. Yeah, but you saw that lesson and you said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not. I'm not. So Hillary Clinton is now smeared. Even though we see what's going on or hear about Russia and all that we continue to hear, and there's this Mueller investigation. Hillary Clinton is still considered the crook, a crooked Hillary. She's still considered, um, you know, some people still scream, lock her up. And I'm like, huh? I told her in that moment, you got to read the book. You or listen to the book. Listen to the Yes, listen to the book. I hear that's a great thing. I, I just don't have time. I need to start listening what, what's to What's great about it, though, is that you can do it when you're driving. You can do it when you're cooking. You can do it when you're working. You can do all the stuff that you do as opposed to sitting down. And for me, it's – I wrote it. I don't need to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> I lived it. But no, I would I, – the woman said she has a great voice. I love her. She's, yes. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate it. And um, I, I think it's – I think it's amazing, Audible, because there's so many people now, like you say, they're busy. And a lot of people commute from like Philadelphia or Virginia long ways. I'm two hours, two hour commute each way to get home from D.C. So, yes, it's a perfect gift to give someone who is that driver or you yourself or if you're working out. So anyway, moving on. So <laughs> Hillary Clinton, um, she's a woman. And she said she keenly knew if she would have fought back, how she would have been perceived. Men don't want to hear what they consider shrillness. They don't want to hear, you know, but it's not. The man was standing behind her, stalking her and said, give me my space. There's a thing called personal space. My kids were taught about personal space when they started school. You know, I don't walk up behind someone. You and know? Al Gore tried that with Bush in 2000. Oh, and and Bush, he got, he got and, challenged. And Bush kind of gave yeah, him yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Back yeah. up, buddy. Right. Get off me. But and see, that's a, a man. That's a man. So I, when I, one thing, as a reporter, we sit and watch. You watch. You observe. And there are always lessons learned. But I said, wait a minute. She never fought back. She never said, this is not who I am. Because we were in that we were in that old time, the high road wins today. Well, people want a spectacle. They'll watch a spectacle and now they'll support it. So that's changed. That has changed. When I saw Donald Trump do that, I saw uh oh, when I saw Donald Trump bring the women um that accused Bill Clinton of sexual improprieties, I said the day has changed. 
and it has forever changed. Is it forever changed? Yes. We're not going back. We're not going back to decorum. There's got to be a little there's got to be a little street in there because the next person who goes up against Donald Trump has got to be able to go back at him. And there's only a couple candidates. I'm not going to say who it is that I believe there are only a couple candidates in this Democratic circle right now who I believe who can successfully do the dozens of or go do tit for tat with him and still be able to say, okay, bam, bam, bam. And then go, yes. And getting back to sentencing, prison reform or sentencing reform or getting back to the Russia issue or getting back to Syria. There are only a few people, I believe, in this this Democratic circle of candidates of 5,000 that can do this. And I said that sarcastically. There are a lot of them coming. And they're going to cancel each other out pretty much. But we'll see. The strongest will survive. The reason why the reason why I fought back, because my name is all I have in this business. Absolutely. I've worked too hard and too long. My parents sacrificed for me to be where I am. My family, not just my parents, my community. And you're not going to sit up there and call me names and I'm going to sit there and take it. Because if I take it, it's like I, it, that's who I am. No, I am not what you call me. It's right. what I answer to. Exactly. That's what my mother used to tell me. And that's why I'm able to stand and say, no, 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 I'm not a, I'm not a loser. I'm a winner because I am such a winner that you asked me at that first press conference to get the CBC together for a meeting with you. So you knew I had some kind of gravitas. So I'm a winner. And I'm also a winner because you put me in a private meeting setting with your son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to talk about sentencing reform. So I'm not the loser that you call me. And then later on, oh, that was a great question. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I mean, so anyway, you have this is like episode six of of the White House reality show. What should we call it? I call it Trumpistan. Is what oh, I call Lord. it. I call it Trumpist because it's okay. a different country. But so in that campaign, and it was this thing. I remember watching at the time and being offended by it. But when Donald Trump would address a black audience or talk to a black audience and say, <laughs> what do you have to lose? Yeah. And you talk about this in the book, and it's a really important uh, part. But It's was, a whole chapter on it. A whole that. chapter. Was that a form of voter suppression? I think it was a form of discounting the struggle, discounting the 400 years that black people have been in this country and just in the last 50 years have finally been franchised in this country, buying homes in places that they want to. Before 50 years ago, you and I wouldn't be able to sit here and talk like this. And in many parts of America, I wouldn't be able to go to a hotel off the side of the road. I wouldn't be able to eat in a restaurant. And people don't realize that was just 50 years ago. 400 years in this nation. And just in the last 50 years, we have freedoms. I'm just 51 years old. That's telling you a lot. Yeah. So and you're in my lifetime. We're the same yeah. age. Yeah. So for him to say, what do you have to lose? We got a lot to lose going back. And we still are a community with the highest numbers of negatives in almost every category. It's a lot to lose. And I'm not race baiting. Look at the stats. People always gonna say, oh, no, that's not true. Well, let me put into account the interstate or the beltways were built to keep certain people in and certain people out. It split communities. They did it in New York, too. So, they did it through the Bronx. Right. Right. And, if, and, and so if you are living somewhere and you don't have proper transportation to get somewhere, you're not going to get the job. Unemployment, yes, it's come down, but it's still higher than our white brothers and sisters. Education, let's go to education. If you live in a certain community, you're going to get a great education. If you live in another community with another zip code, you're not. It's not going to be. It's not. There's not equity 
in this nation still. Dr. King fought for first-class citizenship. The marcher, who's now a martyr, his dream is somewhat fulfilled. We got the Voting Rights Act, but now we're we are voting without the full enforcement of voting rights. And you wonder what that's about? Well, it was put in place for states like Alabama and down south that were doing, you know, putting bubbles in bowls and saying, oh, how many here to allow you to vote? Now they can't go. to. There's problems at the polls. We heard about it in Georgia, Florida, Texas, uh, North Dakota, North Carolina, so many different states. We are better, yet we're going backwards. Oh, and that's right. There's a regression. One of the things that, again, in your book, I found so interesting um, you know, August of last year, around the first anniversary of Charlottesville, mm. president of the NAACP, Derek Johnson, said, mm-hmm. I think, unfortunately, we are now looking at an individual in the White House serving the role as president who's not only made racist comments, but he sought and implemented racist policies. Therefore, I have no other conclusion but to say he's a racist. Is that the first time the head of the NAACP had ever called a president of the United States a racist? I believe so. And I'm going to say this. This is bad. In 2019, 2019, for you to question if a president – well, let's say – let's go back. Now, that was 2017 with Charlottesville. 2018, the beginning of 2018 during the King holiday, I was the one who asked that question about Mr. President, are you racist? At the end of 2018 in November, right after the midterm elections, Yamiche Alcindor got up and asked, Mr. President, are you a white nationalist? It's a sad day in 2019, 2018 to 2017, where anyone has to question if a U.S. president is a racist or even say it. Why wasn't it a bigger deal when when that happened? Because to me, it's a big deal, like you said. And what's amazing isn't just if it doesn't affect you. Why am I bothered? A lot of people feel that way. I don't understand it. People are afraid. People have been bullied into submission to a certain extent. And some people are okay with it. This is now not an issue of legislating. It's a heart issue. But he also doesn't deny it. He won't answer your question. And he's he not forced answer. to. He's not forced to. Certain communities are not forcing him to. You talked about the birtherism, too, which I think is important. And you talk uh. about it, uh, that it was never about a birth certificate. And I love you're the only person, April, who's ever spoken, written anything about this subject that talks about the birtherism and then talks about the Ted Cruz thing. And it just, it, to me, and it that's blows, another thing. It, I'm like, why don't they bring it? That's a hypocrisy. I'm like, what? Be, and this, because, because here's the thing. Nobody, he's, he's white. Nobody ever. Barack Obama's black. But let's here's just the say thing. it. And his father's the, from and the whole claim, Kenya. Right. And the whole claim from Ted Cruz was that his, since his mother was white and American and born in the United States, even though he was born in Canada, nobody ever disputed that Barack Obama's mother was a white woman from Kansas. Kansas. No one's ever. People he, forget that. No one's ever said so by the same logic. But Ted Cruz, let me say this. He's acceptable because he's a Republican and he's different because he's white. And it's unfortunate. I've met Ted Cruz twice and I interviewed him during the campaign after we both got off of um, Hardball when I used to work when I was on MSNBC. But I'm now CNN. Um, C to the N to the N. I don't say four letter words anymore. <laughs> I like that. Uh, and I and I saw him at the gridiron and he just was like staring at me. So how are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, you and I in the same boat, aren't we? I just marvel at the fact that he still has to show some support. But no, but Ted Cruz, he is Barack Obama. He is really more so than Barack Obama. 
And they allowed him. He was actually born out of the country. Out of the country. Barack Obama was actually born in the United States. It's a double standard. It's a double standard. And people don't talk about that. And I'm glad you're the first person who brought that up. Again, hypocrisy, racism. Took April right now. I will say, in all of this chaos and all the attacks on you, you end your book on a positive note. You Hope. say you say you still have faith in this country I and do. the people. I love this you country. You say that your truth is difficult and it's not easy, but it's empowering and you hope it's empowering for everyone It's else. hard to swallow sometimes. People well, don't want to believe it. They think that – see, first of all, Adam, let me tell you something. People think that slavery was the, the slave ships going by Lady Liberty. It wasn't. And they think that they the, the slaves brought baskets with them. People don't realize slavery, the depth of slavery. You know, we watch Roots. It was worse than that. We have sanitized that so was the, much. That was the Hollywood version. Yes. I watched that miniseries. Sure. You know, I've, I've, I've kayaked in the Annapolis Harbor and seen the Alex Haley statue as I kayak around those right. million-dollar boats in the Annapolis Harbor and see that statue. I am five generations removed from the last known slave in my family on my mother's side who was sold on the auction block in Fayetteville, North Carolina. His name was Joseph Dollar Brown. I am probably something he never dreamt about. I am, along with many African-Americans, we are the lineage of the strongest that survived that middle passage. Those ships, those cramped ships and those bodies chained in the bottoms of the ships while they were bringing us to the new land that we didn't know to sell us into bondage and to work for free to give people their income, their money, their wealth. Okay, but I still have hope. And I'm going to tell you why I have hope. In the midst of it all, I am part of we the people. My brother's part of we the people who are still forming a more perfect union. It took this man over 51 years ago, he'd be 90 years old, to die for people to see something's not right. We got it right. We can get it right again. This is a heart issue. And sometimes our ignorance, meaning not knowing, we are so afraid of what we don't know. People don't want to, people think they see me on the street, they say, oh, she's a race baiter. No, that's not the first thing you and I are talking about. I love all communities and I love the richness of every community, but I have hope that we're one day going to get it right. It may not be in my lifetime and it may not be in my kid's lifetime, but you know, I believe that. I can be and do anything that I want to be, and so can my children. Yeah, we've got some keloids, some zits, and some scars. We're going through growing pains. We've been going through growing pains for a long time. But I see, I see something. I see promise. And I see, I see with George W. Bush. And it started, this discontent and this disease happened around that time. And I believe that's why we got Barack Obama. People wanted something new. The system has been broken for a long time. And people wanted something new. They didn't know what it was, what it looked like, but they said, I want something new. They had hope in him. And then after he left, there were people who still, and and, and this is the problem in Washington and around this nation. People feel like they're not a part of the core. They're on the edges. And when you're on the edges, you're on the extreme, you will go to the extreme. And I believe that's why Donald Trump was born out, the political Donald Trump was born out of the idea of change. I want something different. It may not be what everybody wants. Some things are hard to take. Right. <laughs> it's a big, it's a, it's bigger than a horse pill, you know. 
You got to dissolve it a little bit. Put it in that big bottle, gallon of water, and let it take it a little bit at a time if you do take it. But I believe that there is a correction of some of that. You see now, you see more minorities, women, and teachers that are saying I, they're believing in what our founding fathers, who I'm sure had slaves, wrote down. We, the people, are still forming a more perfect union. That's what I believe. Well, if you can be hopeful, April Ryan, you are an inspiration. For a girl from Baltimore, yes. Question four presidents. Three of them, I know what they call me. This one, I don't know the name he calls me, but it's okay. You are a role model. Amen. And I am proud to call you my friend. Thank you, you are so my much. Friend. Thank I you so much. You. Thank you. And everyone, please download the book, Audible. It's April Ryan, Under Fire, Front Lines of the Trump White House. It's worth a listen. Listen to my book. Listen to my book. Thank you again, April. (laughs) Thank you, Adam. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.